Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Beats of the Market podcast. I'm your host, Ed Martin. I'm incredibly excited to be back. There's been so much happening on a daily basis. Unbelievable amount of currency volatility. Some of the things that we talked about in previous episodes, some of it months ago, are now major headlines. It blows my mind. And uh, we continue through our journey together, looking at market data and real-time events. So with that being said, I hope we can sort through some great things today. Let's just dig right in. Today is Saturday, September 10th. We are recording lucky number 13 out of the Beats of the Market podcast. I just want to say thanks so much for listening and tuning in and continuing to encourage me to push my research and my ideas. It has been a remarkable two years just thinking about how much has happened in this time and that some of our previous episodes the ideas contained inside that content are now major headlines. One of them, of course, being the European energy crisis, which has become a incredibly crowded narrative. And so when a narrative becomes crowded like that, and it is on the news in the dentist waiting office, I tend to want to run away from it as far as possible. And so I will be steering out of energy. I am more interested to predict or forecast with probabilities. We work in probabilities, not in certainties, where the puck is going and not where it is. We know that there is a supply crunch on the energy side of the house, particularly in Europe, which I do believe is going to move to the US. We saw that with Texas a few years ago having problems with their grid. And I'll speak to a book that I'm reading now that covers a bit more of that later. And just with that being said, I'm going to try and move away from the energy crisis a bit because we've really just beat that thing dead. It's in the headlines. Let's try and see where things are going from here. Last time on last episode, I said we, this would turn into a food crisis because energy prices and gasoline and ammonia and fertilizers are highly correlated. And actually, on the, what's really wild to me is I believe on the second episode, which should have been something like two months, three months ago, I was expressing ideas of food protectionism happening in different places and commodity hoarding. And we now have India putting in an additional tax on rice. I believe it was 20 or 30%. I believe we will continue to see export bans and higher levies or tariffs on some of these exports as countries tighten down the hatches to deal with these rising energy costs. So with that being said, let's move out of that. What are we going to cover in today's episode? I'll just cover the markets real quick here. We pierced 4,000 on SPY. Our NASDAQ got quite a boost too, which are the tech stocks. We really just had, in my opinion, a lot of short covering. Now, I am full disclosure short the market. I'm not net short the market, 
But I am, you know, having weeks like this make you have a lot of respect for the markets. They have a way of ironing you out and keeping you incredibly modest. I do think, you know, this is not investment advice. I just think we're going lower from here because of the implications of a global slowdown and the amount of demand destruction that is needed to really cool off this inflation and these, this tightening cycle. I remember an article from the Financial Times in December of 2021, Lagarde from the ECB said, we basically said this inflation is a hump. We will get over it. Rate hikes in 2022 are extremely unlikely. Well, folks, we're in 2022 and they just raised 75 basis points. And some of these producer inflation numbers for Europe are horrendous. And that tells me that we could easily see another 75 basis point hike. We have seen an unbelievable amount of currency volatility. I would keep an eye on the Japanese yen, which has gone through a 31% devaluation in just a year. Horrendous what is happening to the people there and the devaluation of their currency. We saw this with the pound, which has fallen to sterling down to the lowest level since 1985. Probably the greatest time to be in the UK right now. An unbelievably strong dollar. So as the US leads the world's rate hike cycle, and we continue to see these rates, the dollar gets stronger. That's king dollar. And it's basically just a wrecking ball. Comes in there and it is wrecking havoc on these emerging markets. We saw this in like 98, for example, where if you have a strong dollar or tightening cycle, it can really just wreak havoc on some of these you know, Asian and emerging market currencies. And so I would be keeping an eye on that. What it looks like is happening to me is the combination of the energy crisis leading to supply side inflation, which is forcing a higher, uh, tight, uh, you know, a more aggressive tightening cycle is creating stronger currencies. And uh, it's um, now emerging into a currency crisis. I would argue that if you lose 30% of your, of your, your country's currency value in just a year, that is a currency crisis. So we have yet to see how this will play out on the earnings of large companies. Remember that companies like Microsoft or Google are going to take a hit on a stronger dollar. It is weaker for U.S. business. It is supposed to crash commodity prices. So a stronger dollar would typically cause the price of oil to sell off. And we have seen that. We've seen oil move from 120 down to 80 a barrel. We're seeing an incredible amount of volatility in the oil markets. And we had Russia finally do what we all knew they were going to do. I thought they were going to do it in October, their month early. And they just said, uh, guess what? Uh, the energy's off. The discussion now in the EU is modeling for rations and some of the political hardships that come with telling people to reduce their output. France saying to their people, Macron, telling him, smart idea, honestly, basically requesting people to reduce their output by 10%. That makes it a little bit easier to put it on everyone's radar. And I would say I could see one way out of this is a transition to nuclear just to get that energy supply 
online. So I would keep your eyes on that sector, on that space. Nuclear has always been fascinating. The top energy consultants, including um, one, Meredith Engwin, whose book I'm reading now, which is called Shorting the Grid. It's a fantastic read. It teaches you a ton about electricity and just how the energy infrastructure of the U.S. works. And I will admit, I, have, I am an idiot to that. I am the guy who flicks on the light switch and I expect it to turn on. And when it doesn't, that's when I'm interested in the grid. It explains that there are problems that we are going to see, that there would be issues like Texas, like California, with these rolling blackouts and these energy shortages and problems that are more based on the policy side than the engineering side. There are some fantastic energy engineers out there that work, that work on the grid. It is more of a policy issue according to her argument. I'm still in the middle of that book, so I will cover it when I'm finished. As I said, I am trying to do a book a week, maybe a little bit longer than a week. Um, that has been an incredible experience. We did, uh, geez, what did we cover? A Moderate Greatness, uh, Trillion Dollar Triage, Money Men from the Wirecard story, which was fantastic, and now Shorting the Grid. Anyway, my point is with Meredith's book is, surprise, surprise, she's a pro-nuclear advocate. So I would be keeping our eyes on countries like Japan that might be moving into nuclear energy. For those of you following the Ukrainian and Russian conflict, there has been a advance from the Ukrainians pushing the Russians back and recapturing a few, looks like two towns there. That seems to be big news for the Ukrainians. Just remember that that doesn't put gas back on the radar anyway. So I, I won't you know, beat that dead horse too much, but I would say if I was Putin, I would be pretty scared. And if he's not, and he fucking should be because, you know, the um, car bomb that went off that was supposed to kill his uh, the brain of the ultra conservative party. You know, they put a, a bomb. Somebody they you know, didn't Ukraine denied it. Maybe it was special forces could be CIA. Who knows? Uh, you know, they just basically blew up his, his daughter. And uh, there have been six Russian oligarchs that have been murdered within his inner circle. That's uh, it's unknown if that's a purge or if a, um, the noose gets tighter around his neck. But this is pretty wild. We had uh, Ravlin Maganov, the head of the um, Russian oil, Luke Oil, uh, Luke oil uh, basically fell out of a hospital window from six stories. And, uh, it, you know, they just basically just found him dead outside a clinic. They had the gas tycoon, Sergei um, Protosenya. Uh, his wife, not Natalia, and their daughter, Maria, were all found dead in their Spanish mansion. So that is also really wild. And the, um, who else has gone? Jeez. Uh, the anti-Kremlin telegram channel, General SRV, claimed that uh, Maganov had been killed on Putin's orders. So if there's anything to that, I guess, uh, you know, it could have been an inside job. You know, I, I kind of like dabbling with some of this conspiracy theory stuff. Who knows? Moral of the story is they're dead, right? So the people close to him are getting thrown out windows, are uh, you know mysteriously vanishing. I think one was hung, and uh, geez, yeah. So um, as I said, if I was him, uh, I would be uh, pretty um, pretty scared. I think 
let's see who else do we have here the uh vladinov uh Vivia. i'm probably butchering those names the ex-vice president of gazprom bank was found shot dead in a moscow penthouse and uh a few days later sergei protesenya was found dead hanging in spain i think that was one of our early ones we listed yeah so really really wild i'm going to just take a wild guess that that will continue and so you know as he look i mean russia has made a fucking huge mistake with this right like the cards are the energy cards are in their hands and so you can only squeeze so much until additional supply comes online and when that happens you have put yourself in an uh, what do they call it an existential crisis you are completely screwing up the world and long term this is a failing strategy unless there's something that we all don't know and you know maybe that's the case maybe this has to play out but um really wild situation and so i will be keeping my eye a little bit on that i don't like to get so caught up in war headlines there's only so much we can do i think a lot of people kind of understand i think there is a subconscious realization in Europe that things are going to change and it could be a hard year or two and the world just goes through it and we have been the most privileged generation in history most of the things that we complain about are complete bullshit and are identity issues that are probably leading indicators of societal decay and we are going to start to really need to start thinking about energy and food security. And if that means throwing some policies out the window, then so be it. We saw with um, the passing of the queen, RIP to the queen, what an incredible legacy, 15 prime ministers from Winston Churchill all the way up to uh, Truss, the new one there. But we saw with that new prime minister who has come in that she is removing the fracking ban. And she is strongly considering nuclear. And so it is very nice to see someone who doesn't have their head up their ass. And uh, we will see if those policies move towards some other countries in Europe. But getting additional supply online when you have a energy crunch certainly doesn't hurt. And I would just kind of add to this that if we are seeing a commodity war, then the only way to when a commodity war is to flood the market. And so with that being said, there was a fantastic discussion, which I would encourage everybody to listen to. It was from the podcaster Grant Williams, who is a British financer. Um, I'm not sure if he's an active financer, but he spent a lot of time in markets and uh, just a a brilliant um, conversationalist who had uh, Doomberg, who is an energy analyst who choose to be, chooses to be anonymous. He's also a great writer. I would encourage you to check out his content. Uh, Luke Groman, who is a wonderful economist who has wild predictions and has put his ass on the line. I really love that. I like it when economists or uh, financial minds just say, hey, I think this is going to happen. And they stick to their guns. And Luke has stuck to his guns. And a few years ago, he was saying that oil... Uh, sold in Russia, or that basically Russia would uh, sell oil for gold. And, uh, you know, people thought he was a whack job. And, you know, here we are. So I love that kind of stuff. And um, the third person, I can't remember his name, he was a geopolitical expert. 
it was it, just in my opinion, probably three or four of the brightest minds. I imagine these conversations are happening at the political level and behind you know doors of the government, but they were essentially talking about Europe's situation and uh, what some of these implications are and how far would the crisis go before Europeans throw Zelensky under the bus? And that's a very interesting question. It might sound fucked up, but there is a level that that could happen. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it's certainly there if things don't improve. The majority of polling already shows that most Europeans want the war to end at any cost. Let's just switch over to the U.S. economics real quick. We had the Fed Reserve Governor Waller, who is quite close to Jerome Powell, express another significant interest rate hike would be on the table for September. So they are staying to this rate path here. As of right now, the CME Fed futures gives about a 80% chance of another 75 basis point hike. And so that is going to continue to slow down the economy. They also came out and said it is too premature to say if inflation has peaked. That is something that I also agree with. And uh, if inflation suddenly slows, that they could see rates peak under 4%. Uh, with our next hike, that will get us to 3.2. I still think terminal could be around 4. Let's see how far they have to go. The real story here is how much of this inflation is transitory, how much of it is sticky. When I am looking at the job openings for the U.S., the total uh, you know, non-farm and unemployment levels, they are twice as high as pre-pandemic. And so let's see what our gauge here is. I am looking at FRED. That's the Federal Reserve Economic Data. Um, so directly from the government, these levels are in thousands. So if we have this level at 1.2 uh, in the middle of our chart here, that was from 2020, it fell off all the way down to 0.2. So in, in just basically a, ma a massive 80% drop in, in job openings at the worst of the pandemic. And now it is at 2.0. So there are twice as many job openings as there were before the pandemic, which is just totally insane. If you think about it, that would, that still creates an, a massive amount of uh, wage inflation, because if you have a tight labor market, you will continue to see a price wage spiral. And I have said this before in some of these very early episodes, and I'm going to stick to it. I believe we are in a price wage spiral until they push unemployment numbers up and they might have to go to 4% unemployment. We moved from 3.5 to 3.7. So that is some also, also some recent news. So take that as you will. And uh, yeah, so we just have to see how this data continues to move along. We are still seeing some wage pressure. I believe it was 6.7% wage growth. That is not a good number for the government there. And um yeah, you know, we still haven't stopped hiking yet, right? So we need this this rate hiking cycle. It's going to take some time for it to play out. And um, yeah, so that's um, that's it from the U.S. side there. The uh, U.K. is um, suggesting government subsidies to stop growing food crops. The cost of fertilizer basically went from 190 uh, pounds. Some Brits call that quid, so 190 quid per ton uh, of wheat to 900. 
And, you know, that, that's just, that, those are mind boggling numbers. So, you know, a four, what was that like 450 for more than 400% increase in the, in the cost of fertilizer and has given over half of the land to growing wild bird seed. And these subsidies will make it more profitable, uh, more profitable than growing food um, was before uh, the rise of fertilizer costs. Um, so these are just some developments there. Also, I am looking at teaching data. So teachers, I think this is actually a world phenomenon. Um, certainly uh, makes sense to me. If you know anybody who is teaching during the pandemic, they probably expressed a hell of a lot of, um, what's the word, anger at the situation. Because when people were, when students were forced to attend school from home, teachers were taking on the role of parents. And it was just, you know, just a really shitty situation. It was infuriating to them and they weren't really being listened to. And so what do they do? They quit, right? You can only push people so far. So Germany has announced that by 2030, they will need 81,000 teachers. And I am looking at the, again, FRED data for all employees, local government and education. That number was down from, if we are just using simple math here, uh, without calling it millions or anything uh, on our chart, it was basically eight point, yeah, re really just eight at the top. That was 2020. And that number fell all the way down to a low of about 7.3. And now that number is at 7.7 .7, and it is steadily trending down. So we have lost from 8.0 to roughly 7.6. And that might not sound like a lot, but the trend is steadily going down. And if we just extrapolate that data to move back a few years, we basically lost six years worth of total teacher hiring, which is fucking nuts if you think about it. So six years worth of hiring all these government educators, we're now, we just lost all that. And sometimes when you're thinking about a recession or, you know, a market crash, as everybody likes to call it, there seems to be a lot of sensationalism about that. I think what is more important is how far do you push things back economically? Right. So if you were to sell off on 4,000 spy down to, you know, 3,000, that might give up. I don't know. I, I don't have the charts in front of me, but maybe that gives up two or three years worth of economic gains. And that would make sense if, uh, you know, a country like Germany has said that they will have a 15% drop in manufacturing output and they haven't even started, uh, you know, curtailing energy yet. So this, uh, that we could move quite a, a bit back. And so when I'm looking at teacher data and I say, oh, we lost, you know, six years worth of, of teachers, that is completely nuts. And it is sad. And it says a lot of things about the industry. Maybe we should have paid them more. Maybe they were horribly underpaid. Maybe the structure of the unions is wrong. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Where do you start, right? I don't, um, I don't know. I'm not a teacher in the U.S., so maybe I'm not qualified to speak on that. But the data tells me that we need to figure it out because this is going to create a huge drop in the literacy rate. I think we probably are already seeing that from maybe sixth graders and under, and that will become a global trend. So if we don't have teachers and put a strong emphasis on the quality of our education anyway. So this isn't a rant about education by any means. I just think it's important. And, uh, you know, can you blame the uh, high school teacher who was basically a, uh, you know, doubling as a parent who became a software engineer. No, right? So 
It makes sense to me. Let's bounce over to housing real quick. We had the 30-year fixed mortgage pierce 6%. And at one point, I believe it peaked at about 6.25. And that's, a, that's an incredibly high rate for mortgages. For anybody that was around in the 1980s, they might remember the historically high mortgages. I believe some of them are 12 or 15%. Completely nuts. And uh, you know, I don't know where terminal is on these rates, but my guess is that they are going to go higher. And we also have the monthly eviction filing data here. We, uh, if we were to just draw a line through 100% for July, we had 200% the average filings. So July was a spike. We had a previous spike to about 175% back in March of this year. And really just through 2020, because of the pandemic stimulus and the eviction moratoriums and just some of the protection for home buyers and renters, there was hardly any. So that was about 10, less than 10% of um, the uh, monthly average for eviction filings all the way through 2020. Now, what's interesting about that is in January and in March of 2020, right as the pandemic kind of slapped everybody, it jumped up to 150%. So the high pre-pandemic was March at about 150% the average, and now we are over 200%. So keep an eye on this trend. This is interesting to see how it jumps on a monthly basis. Some of it could be seasonality, but I am watching that closely, and that will you know, probably let more hot air out of the bubble. So I said I wouldn't talk too much about the European energy crisis. I just want to bounce around some pieces of information in Germany. We are seeing a lot of insolvent companies come up in Germany. So um, Hackel is uh, one of the largest toilet paper manufacturers, um, or at least uh, the largest importer to Europe. They are insolvent. And so this kind of plays on a theme here that um, also something that Luke Groman discussed in his um, you know, prior discussion with Grant Williams, and that is uh, that the euro is going to stick together. As things get bad, the sentiment to keep Europe together is uh, it's polling stronger. And so the fragmentation that Putin wants is, is backfiring, right? So the sanctions that the West are doing on Russia is backfiring, and Putin's goal to dissolve the EU are also backfiring. And that's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic there at play. It sort of reminds me of a bunch of people that are chained together, holding hands, and they're just kind of slowly going off a cliff and all pulling each other off the side. And so that is, uh, seems to be part of it is that uh, they, they are only as strong as they are together and they are they basically at this point require everybody to stick together because the EU is a political construct not a mathematical one and so they can stomach this crisis by turning on the money printer full blast and just inflating the shit out of everybody's money uh, you know basically, basically eviscerating the middle class and they can play that game longer then Putin can play his energy game and so i think that is kind of uh, you know the, the Maybe not the uh, the go-to policy, but that certainly seems like what's going on right now. And so that brings us to our main theme here, which is that you can be insolvent for a long time, but you can't be illiquid for a minute. What that means is 
you can have somebody underwriting your debt. You can have the government bailing you out. You can have all this energy stimulus. But the second that you don't have collateral or that you don't have assets or that there's not liquidity in the system and something freezes up, you're fucked. You're done. And so that is the theme right now. I just wanted to take a minute to speak to bear market rallies. I was reading a piece of uh, history from some of these historical bear market rallies, which is something that I believe we are in the middle of. We saw a 20% bounce, I think in just a month, in the middle of a, a raid uh, hiking cycle, which is really, really bizarre and just kind of fun to me. Also part of the reason why uh, you know I'm sure maybe that will end up being a horrible decision. We will see over these next couple months. You know, I have certainly been wrong about things. But um, from November, the low in 1929 to the April high the, of 1930, the market rallied 46%, a 55% recovery from the loss uh, from the peak. And in 1973, the summer rally, um, after the initial decline, recovered 59% of the S&P's total loss from the high. In 2000, the NASDAQ, which had been the main event of the tech bubble, recovered 60% of its initial losses in just two months. Remember that that would later end up coming down, I believe, 79%. So you have this like 60% bounce. It's just absolutely gut-wrenching, the volatility. And we are in a seasonal time of year where we are seeing a lot of volatility. So another example here is in 2022, the intraday peak of August 16th, the S&P made back 58% of its losses since its June lows. Thus, we could say that the current event so far is looking incredibly similar to other super bubbles. Bam. And so take that as you will. I think that speaks to what we are seeing now. Some of that data has been collected from Jeremy Grantham, who has been called a perma bear. I, uh, you know, take that as you will. I think he's a, a brilliant mind. He hasn't been right about everything. You know, he's made a positive return. God bless him. And, uh, you know, he has uh, some interesting thoughts and he's just throwing our numbers our way. So I'm, I'm, uh, I tend to agree with him on that. But um, again, I don't know exactly where things are going. I tend to think we do go lower from here. This uh, situation in Europe needs to play out. And uh, I think it moves to the U.S. Unfortunately, we already had problems just uh, recently with California moving towards a uh, just one warning level away from rolling blackouts. And uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, this uh, this hiking cycle is still underway here. So take that as you will. And I think that's pretty much everything for this episode. I I'm not sure what the theme of our next one will be. I will try and come up with some cool ideas and, uh, you know, hopefully have that book done. It has been a fantastic read so far. So if you were interested in learning about how energy infrastructure works, um, Margaret Angwin, the book is called Shorting the Grid, uh, has worked in basically every side of energy infrastructure, whether it's renewables, wind, solar, geothermal, natural gas, nuclear, uh, oil, whatever it might be, um, what a brilliant woman. And, you know, she realized quite far in her career that she didn't understand what she was looking at and just went even further, uh, you know, into her research career. And I think that's just fantastic. Uh, also a background as I believe an organic chemist. So, uh, you know, fiercely sharp woman and uh, we need to be listening to her and what, um, what she is saying about energy infrastructure. Um, particularly with uh, the contents of her book there. 
So with that being said, thanks again so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend. I hope you get to spend some time going out. I am certainly uh, trying to live my best life. I think we might have some weird times in front of us. And, you know, that's okay. That's how the world works. Spend some time, some quality time with yourself and your family and go out and travel. It could be really difficult to travel over the next couple of years. I'm not saying that's, you know, my base case or that's going to happen. But just in case, we should all be living our best life, right? I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend once again. And as always, thank you so much for listening and much love. is for entertainment purposes only nothing i say should be construed as investment advice and some of the securities i talk about may be actively held